Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, work with one that has your best interests in mind. Use Rocket Mortgage for a transparent, trustworthy home loan process that's completely online at quickenloans.com. fool It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. I'm taping on the final day of January, January 31st, 2017. The first thing I want to note, this is just a personal side note, each of the last several years, January has been an alcohol-free month for me. Now, I'm somebody who enjoys a glass of wine with every supper. It seems so for a solid 31 days every year. It hurts a little bit, and that's going to be ending. So you can picture me if you if you like. You're hearing this the next day. I was up at midnight, and I was having a glass of red wine at 12:01. All right, this is going to stay pretty personal this week. It's going to be fairly autobiographical. We are going to continue our series of campfire stories. This is Campfire Stories Volume Two. Now, history will show that our first. Campfire Stories Volume 1 here at Rule Breaker Investing, the podcast, was on June 1st of 2016. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that or you're a new listener, I, of course, endorse your going back and re listening to Campfire Stories Volume 1. Having a fire going in your hearth is a great idea as you listen to Campfire Stories Volume 1, where I talk about my experience with a CNBC hostess asking me if I still like cloud computing stocks after the day before. I also tell the Five Monkeys story. I hope it still stands the test of time as a good listen. Uh, but Campfire Stories Volume 2, this is going to be stories from my early youth. So, um, a few months ago, we did a portrait of the investor as a young man where I told early stock market investments that I'd made and drew some lessons there. That was on, by the way, September 21st of 2016. So, if that was a portrait of the investor as a young man, this is more like a portrait of the investor as a boy. Early days. Early days, I think often we can look back to who we were as a boy or girl and see a lot of how we ended up as an adult. I think these stories are consequential. The things that you remember from your youth, we all forget a lot of our youth, but the things we remember tend to bear some mark of our character or some stamp of our personality. That's why we've retained them. We saw something of ourselves as adults in the experiences we had. As a youth, I have four stories for this Campfire Stories Volume 2, and they are not only presented chronologically, but they're also presented in ascending order of importance. And I, th- I think the greatness of the story. So I'm putting a little pressure on myself. I hope to do really what the Motley Fool's been trying to do since we started the company in July of 1993, and that is to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. That's the aim this week. And before I get started, I should mention one, I think one of my best stories that won't be told in this week's podcast was told on August 3rd of 2016, and that was the I Own the Water podcast. So, if you want to hear, again, the story of me shorting Donald Trump's public company and going up to Trump's office and discussing that for one hour with him years ago, uh, and what I learned from that, I would highly encourage you to listen to that one as well. Very, Very increasingly timely, it seems. All right, let's get started. Story number one. And for each of these, I'll try to draw a couple lessons from the story, uh, and make at least one of them about investing as well. So, the first story starts in fourth grade. I was a fourth grader at St. Albans School here in Washington, D.C. It was a private school, um, one of those elite private schools. I don't think the school would mind me saying that. And 
By no means do I think of it as elitist. It is just a very challenging, century-old school here in Washington, D.C., ultimately one that I would leave after ninth grade because, really, it was so competitive, it was, it was kind of starting to undermine me as a person. It's a wonderful school and one that I'm proud to have sent some of my children to. So, in fourth grade, Mr. Hoskinson was my homeroom teacher. And in fourth grade, what we did was we did a stock picking contest. So, back then, the main goal was just to teach us what the stock market was. And back then, all stock market prices were, of course, in the morning newspaper each day. There was nothing like the internet where we could go and check on the latest or look at a graph of a stock or anything like research a company. Nope, it was all based on the newspaper. And I entered the contest with all my fellow Albanians. And I think probably they did what I did, which is have your parents pick your stocks. So we were supposed to compose a portfolio of, I think it was 10 companies. And again, the main discipline here was for us to learn that there are these things called corporations and that they have moving numbers attached to them with their share prices. And you can actually be a part owner of these companies by buying the stock and looking up each of the companies each day in the morning paper. I remember going to Harcourt Brace Jovanovich. That was one of my picks, although I think back then I was saying Jovanovich because Dad had picked it and I didn't really know anything about this publishing company, but just trying to find the abbreviated name of Harcourt Brace Jovanovich under the H section of the morning paper was enough of a challenge. And then writing down the price, of course, back then it was in fractions, so I'm making this up. It would have been 13 and 5 eighths, so I needed to enter that. Basically, we started each morning of the month-long contest, and we went to the newspaper, and we checked the prices, and we wrote them down and kept track and kept score of ourselves over the course of that month. I don't really remember many of my other companies. I know one was the Washington Post Company. That was my father's best stock. I've talked about that in Rule Breaker Investing before. If you followed The Motley Fool for a long time, you know that my brother Tom and I had the great fortune of having a dad who loved the stock market and stuck with the hometown company, Washington Post Newspaper, where I was looking up the prices for Harcourt Brace Jovanovich each day. And that was our best family stock. And it was a winner that my dad let run. And it was very influential, shaping my and Tom's investing perspective. So I remember I had Harcourt Brace Jovanovich, Washington Post coming. I think I had Cap Cities, maybe Capital Cities, the big media company. I don't really remember any of the others, but here's what I'll always remember. I'll always remember the final day of the contest when we calculated the final results. And as it turns out, out of a class, a homeroom class of maybe 25 kids, I won. I won. Now, I didn't really win. It was my dad who won. And he didn't really win, right? Because how much does anybody win in one month of stock market investing? But what I got is what I'll always remember. What I got as a reward, it was the largest Hershey bar that my eyes had ever seen. One of those oversized Hershey bars. So if you're, you know, 10 years, nine or 10 years old, it probably looks twice as large as it actually was. But I'll always remember that great big Hershey bar that I won. And for me, connecting back to a lesson, something to learn from this, I think I learned two things. I learned, first of all, that the stock market was a lot of fun. I spent a lot of time as a youth and still as an adult pouring through the newspaper and today online watching sports statistics. I love following sports. Um, But I also realized at the age of 9 or 10 that you can find this other section of the paper And those statistics matter even more than however many points your favorite basketball player scored last night, because those numbers represent your own wealth. 
Uh, and so, having your stocks win, I learned at a pretty early age, means a lot more than having your player or your team win, your fantasy team even, although I know some people play that for money. But the two lessons that I learned really is that the stock market is fun and profits are real. And you could track it back then through the newspaper. Campfire Story, Volume 2, Story Number 1. And before I pass on to story number two, I just want to pause a second and invite you to think for yourself about what your first experience was with the stock market. It might have been at a younger age than I just portrayed, or maybe it wasn't until last year and you're a 59-year-old aspiring retiree. But that first brush that you had with the stock market, that can often be a very telling thing for each of us. And we see seeds planted that ended up growing something later in life, for better or for worse. But Anyway, for me, a very positive introduction and a happy early memory. All right, story number two. Story number two was that a year later, at this all boys school that I went to, somebody came through from the Kennedy Center, which is one of the big theatrical venues here in Washington, D.C. And that person was a talent scout and was coming through to, as it turns out, hire some of us to sing as urchins in a visiting opera company's summer tour. It was going to be Teatro La Scala, which is the very famous La Scala opera company from Italy. And they were coming to Washington, D.C., and they weren't going to be bringing little boys and girls with them. They needed to find some locals. So, I was a member of the chorus. I was by no means a lead member of the chorus, but it's something that I've always enjoyed, singing throughout my life. And it was an opportunity with about 10 classmates, and then at our sister school, 10 more, about 20 of us fifth graders getting to be in La Boheme, which is the famous opera by Puccini. We were only in one scene. It's Act Two. It's a famous scene. I think some people say I'm not an opera buff, per se. I wish I were. I'd be more impressive if I were. But um, I think a lot of people will say this is the single scene in all of Italian opera that has more people on the stage than any other. So, at the beginning of Act 2, there's just a great crowd, including children, of course, gathered with street sellers, announcing their wares. Things like orange, dates, hot chestnuts. I'm reading the summary here from Wikipedia, because I only know it as Aranci, Ninoli, Caldi, Moroni e Caramelle, Tarone. And I don't really even speak Italian, but I, rem- I still have my lines memorized. Of course, my voice hadn't changed back then, and there was no real choreography to it. We were loosed upon the stage. We were supposed to skip around and sing, make sure we're staying uh, on cue, along with all of the rest of the adults who had their own lines. And part of the fun of that experience was that um, real Italian women would come up and just tweak my cheek, you know, like pinch your cheek like a little too hard. But it was tremendously fun. I think that there were seven performances that summer. This would have been the summer of 1977. And, um, but the reason that I'm telling this story and I'm mentioning, in fact, this was one of two stories I ended up writing about in my college essay to win the Moorhead Scholarship to attend the University of North Carolina, was that there was an incredible magic around it for me. The opportunity to be in this huge backstage space before the opera, to have the opera stars warming up the orchestra, and then for the the audience to fill, and then for the curtain to go down and everything go dark, and then by Act 2, to be out there in front of the lights with my friends, skipping around, singing our lines, um, is something that clearly touched me. And I think what I learned from that as an investor, if I'm trying to think backward, I think there was an allure to it for me 
uh, of possibilities that I hadn't dreamt of before. I'd never thought to have an experience like this. I'd had no other analog for, for this experience. And so it was so much wildly better than I was expecting. I've loved the theater ever since. And in fact, if you come and visit Full HQ one day, you'll see that each of our employees has their motley, which is their value. One of our core values at the Motley Fool is your motley. And that's the value that you bring to our company, to our office every day. The way I'll sometimes describe it is the Motley Fool is a great big stained glass window. And we, when we hire a new employee, they bring their own unique piece of glass, a unique shape, and a unique hue, and add it to our stained glass window. And if you were to come by my desk, you'll see that my Motley is and always has been Excelsior, which is from the Latin ever higher. And I guess I should put in a quick word about that. Uh, ever higher. So I want the stock market to go ever higher. I want our business to go ever higher. I want my own life and my consciousness and my experiences and those in particular of people around me, my friends and family. And yes, my Rule Breaker Investing podcast listenership. I want to raise everything up around me. And I'm sure sometimes I do it well and other times I fail, but that's what I've been trying. That's what I'm trying to do. That's Excelsior. And I think it may even go back to that summer in the Kennedy Center Opera House where I had that amazing experience that kind of lifted my awareness that life could be far better than I'd previously maybe thought. Story number two. All right, again, I've put pressure on myself because my claim is that each of these gets better. I have two more to share. You should please keep score at home. But before we do so, let me mention that support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. When it comes to the big decision of choosing a mortgage lender, it's important to work with someone that you can trust and who has your best interests in mind. With Rocket Mortgage, you're going to get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Don't waste time searching through stacks of paperwork. With Rocket Mortgage, you can securely share your financial info to get a mortgage approval in minutes. Skip the bank, skip the waiting, and go completely online at quickenloans.com slash fool. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Thanks again to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans for supporting my podcast. Story number three comes just after ninth grade, and it's a spring break story. I wrote about this story in an article about 11 years ago on our website. If you want to read it, this was not my headline. It really doesn't capture the article, but my editor at the time wanted to call it Leaders Who Make You Rich. So, if you want to just Google the phrase Leaders Who Make You Rich, you're going to find an article. I really enjoyed writing the subtitle which I think was also penned by my editor, and this is a good one, Why Character Matters in Baseball, in Business, and in Life. And I'm going to do pretty much a straight read of this story. I hope it'll speak for itself, and then I want to reflect on it right after I conclude. So, I wrote on November 7, 2006, a nice thing happened yesterday. It had absolutely nothing to do with business or stocks, but I had to write about it. Hold on there, maybe it does have a single powerful thing to teach us about business and stocks. And life. Maybe it's the best lesson of all. It's a baseball story. As a youth, I had the great good fortune of being able to serve as Bat Boy for the Minnesota Twins baseball team over bits and pieces of a few seasons. I got to go down for spring training at Old Tinker Field in Orlando, Florida, where the then hapless Twins 
did their vernal sojourns. Now, back in those days, 1982-83, the Twins had a bunch of exciting upcoming players, but were losing 100 games a year. Kind of like last season, by the way. Anyway, Twins youngsters such as Kent Herbeck, Gary Gaetti, and Frank Viola would wind up winning the World Series just five years later, 1987, and again in 1991. But my own Bat Boy days were their salad days, as Shakespeare puts it, when they were green. And so was I. Salad green Bat Boys don't exactly command respect among Major League Baseball players. Maybe I benefited because my grandfather owned a piece of the team, but actually, I don't think that mattered at all. But there was one player who stood out to me different from all the rest. In contrast to his peers, who were young, strong, likably cocky, and loved to joke around, he was older, sadder, and wiser. He was low-key to their high-key. He was actually a rookie, but he was 30 years old and had worked his way up long and hard through the minor leagues, and he just exuded humility. My locker was right next to his. I can still see the masking tape affixed there. Wash, W-A-S-H, his simple nickname, scrawled in black letters. The thing about Wash was that he actually got to know my name. Rather than call me Kid or Bucko or whatever friendly but patronizing nickname the other players used. And as a 15 year old, I could relate to him on a special level because he was only 5'11 and weighed 163 pounds. By the way, these days, I'm 5'11 and weigh 163 pounds. Of course, back then I was a bit smaller, but you can see how he was kind of my guy. Indeed, to the only kid in the Twins clubhouse, he was like an uncle, someone I could talk to. In contrast to the plucky, obnoxious older brothers the rest of the players represented. Maybe my locker was put there for a reason. So I remember Ron Washington, aka Wash, well. The baseball encyclopedia will show Ron as a dependable but unspectacular weak hitting middle infielder who batted 451 times for the Twins that season, 1982, and never got that much playing time again. He was released by the Twins during spring training of 1987 the year they would win it all. He left the game some years later. I didn't really follow where he went after that. To me, he'd been a standout in the clubhouse, but like most fans, I admittedly wind up spending more of my time following the standouts on the field. Well, fast forward. As of November 6th, 2006, the day before I wrote this article, Ron's now a standout on the field, too. Yesterday, Ron was named a Major League Baseball manager. Following his increasingly visible presence in the third-base coaching box for the Oakland A's these past few years of Moneyball fame, the Texas Rangers tapped him to lead them back to the winner's circle. We'll see whether that happens. I'm a big believer that general managers mean about four times as much to baseball's success as team managers, so in many ways the Rangers' success is not completely in Ron's hands. Before I get to my investing lesson, here's an Associated Press story quote from Ron and from my own distant memories. Boy, does it ring true. Quote, I'm going to be a player's manager. My job is solely to make sure that every player on the Texas Rangers feels like they are a part of everything going on here, Washington said Monday night when he was introduced at a news conference. As a manager, he continued, I'm no good if the players don't get it done. If the players get it done, I'm great. End quote. No bluster. No, we're going to win the championship. No, I came from such humble beginnings and I've earned this. No, very little focus on the self. And then my article continues. You ready for the investment lesson? You want your CEO to be Ron Washington. 
any company you've invested in, if you have significant dollars on the line over a long time period, you better make sure that the qualities I experienced firsthand in Ron Washington are there in the individuals who not exactly indirectly affect your retirement. Good people don't really change. 24 years later, same Ron Washington, same perspective. Again, that is the type of person who you want running a company. It's a powerful business and investing lesson, particularly in light of the recent options backdating scandals that have weighed on such seemingly strong companies such as McAfee, Converse Technology, and United Health. It says nothing about PE ratios or competitive moats. It isn't everyone's approach either. Buffett, a model CEO of Berkshire Hathaway, if there ever was one, says he likes companies that can be run by idiots or monkeys, since sooner or later an idiot or a monkey will be managing your company. Good line. But an even truer truth to me is that character matters. And to the extent you can find excellent character in who runs the companies in your portfolio, who you work with professionally, who you marry, who you play golf with, who you pay to teach your kids, that, dear fools, counts for more than any dividend or P.E. ratio or quarterly earnings miss. And in my own direct experience, character matters is what makes you rich. Rich in more ways than you might think. That's one reason I own shares of companies such as Whole Foods and Starbucks, and why I recommend them to our subscribers of Motley Fool Stock Advisors. Simply put, the CEOs at these companies take leadership and all it entails seriously. So, fellow investor, fellow traveler in these lands, remember my Ron Washington lesson, and go Ron Washington. And that's how the article ended. I feel compelled to add in a little of the aftermath now looking back 11 years later. The first thing I want to note is that literally four years later, the Texas Rangers ended up in the World Series. And indeed, one year after that, the Rangers went back to Major League Baseball's World Series. And in neither case did they actually win. But within four or five years, Ron Washington had the Rangers in position to win it all. In fact, and I know I've got some Texas Ranger fans listening, I know this one still hurts a little bit, but in 2011, the Rangers eventually lost to the St. Louis Cardinals in seven games after twice being one strike away from the title in Game 6. So, tremendous success for Ron, and yet, personally and off the field, he did not have a lot of success. In 2009, he apparently tested positive for cocaine use, and that was acknowledged in 2010. Then in 2014, he announced his resignation as manager of the Rangers after eight years. A few days later, it came out that Ron's resignation may have been related to allegations of sexual assault against a reporter. He announced about a week after that that he'd been having an extramarital affair, and he had resigned to reconcile with his family. My purpose here is, of course, not to underline any aspect of Ron's failings, but I guess what you're seeing here is a full human portrait of somebody with whom I shared one special week way back in the day. So, whatever we may think of Ron Washington now, looking back from 2017, I see traits that I still admire in somebody who had a lot of success and also some tough moments as well. And that lesson about leadership, I went back and just double checked. Since I mentioned Whole Foods and Starbucks in that article, it's worth noting that the market is up about 70% since I wrote that article. Whole Foods, after a pretty bad decline the last two years, is only up about 40%. 
Uh, Starbucks is up 200%. I guess if you take that as a little portfolio, the character matters to stock portfolio, it averages out with a nice market beat. Anyway, in closing on that one, I think the lessons are self-explanatory, but I think who is running your organization matters a lot for better and sometimes for worse. All right, in story number four, this one concerns an experience I had traveling just after graduating college. I'm not going to mention till the end where I was. I'm just going to tell the story straight up without that. So, I was with friends very late at night in another country on a highway. I was sitting in the so-called shotgun seat. My friend Charles was at the wheel and his friend, my high school classmate Tom, was sleeping in the back. It was probably 11 p.m. in a very remote area on a highway. There were no lights on the highway. It was pitch black. And I was having a conversation with Charles when all of a sudden our car started lurching as if we were running over something bad. And Charles hit the brake hard and pulled the car to a stop. And we both wondered what, had, what we had just run over. And it was as we began to open our doors to get out of the car, all of a sudden, 10 or so flashlights start cutting through the night sky, racing toward us from maybe 40 yards away. So you can picture these. Three American expatriates, young guys stepping outside of their car, blinking, trying to figure out what's happening as these flashlights charge toward us, and we're trying to figure out what's happening to our car. And one of those flashlights, held by a man who sped past my friend Charles, went right into the driver's seat of the car and began to start to turn on the car, trying to start the car. And the other nine grouped around us, and we were trying to figure out what it was all about. And as it turned out, here's what had happened. Late at night on this highway, we had missed that there was a detour. We were supposed to go off of the highway and check in at this guard check post. My friend Charles, otherwise a very intelligent individual, someone I still admire today, had simply missed that, and he'd driven over rocks, rock cairns that had been set up in the highway to divert us to go off and check in at the guard checkpoint. Charles had just fully run them over, flattened all the tires, ruined the underside of the car. The flashlights were the guards, and in contrast to what you might expect, they weren't particularly upset at all. I doubt many cars had come through that night. They recognized us as the idiot foreigners that we were. And they very good-naturedly welcomed us into the guard house. They served us coffee. I remember we were playing backgammon with them. They invited us simply to spend the night with them. For the record, we spent the night in our car. They didn't have room for us at the check post. But we played backgammon with them. I remember a black and white television, muted, playing random American shows of 30 years before. They were extremely hospitable, and the next day they offered to tow us back to the big city. And they did that. Three guards got in a truck, tied a line back to our car. We sat in our car, one of us, the car of course not on, one of us just steering the wheel to keep up with the rope that had been affixed 20 feet ahead of us, and we made it all the way back to the big city dropped us off at the rental car agency, where the head of the rental car agency from whom we had rented this car, a gentleman dressed very formally in a suit, an older gentleman, balding, said, We are so sorry. You are visitors in our country. This is so unfortunate this has happened to you. And the Peugeot, 
although he pronounced it Pijo, the Pijo that I have rented to you. So please, he went on, have another Pijo. With no real downside, we probably signed a form or two. We simply swapped out the car that we had ruined in order to sit down in our brand new Peugeot rental car. I've often thought since then, as I've told this story to audiences and friends, how would we have been treated in the United States of America? So now let me reveal the city where this happened. The city where this happened was Damascus, it is the capital of Syria. And what I wrote when I wrote this up 10 years ago feels even truer today. I wrote, What I learned on that trip, which I believe remains true today, is that beyond a few wackos, the people of the Middle East are very kind and humble hosts. Nightly news headlines are made by the rare instances of violence or hatred or idiocy. But we must not forget the vast majority of people in every country are, to my way of thinking, and based on my experience, kind-hearted. We all need just a little bit more understanding, which would lead to a lot less fear. I went on to close that out with, I'm not entirely sure how any of this relates to your stock market portfolio this month, but I believe that in these times, the story is worth sharing. And indeed, I wrote that in March of 2006. So, there you have it, campfire story number four for this edition. And I think what I learned as a young man was that my optimism was largely justified. I've always been an optimist. It was just my nature from the earliest days. And having experiences like that, when at the time, some of my friends thought I was crazy to travel in Syria, or I also went to Jordan, or in a separate trip with those same friends to Pakistan, um, they're experiences that I really treasure as I think back now. And it makes me much more sympathetic and much more understanding, I think, that a lot of the negative headlines that we see today worldwide are about a tiny minority of people. Think of your own nightly news that you watch maybe on television if you still watch it each night. Often the lead story will be about something really bad that happened in your respective town or city. Ask yourself how many people in your town or city are actually like that or would ever do something like that. If you're like me, and my my home city is Washington, D.C., it is a tiny, tiny percentage of people doing bad things. I think we have to remember that. And it's really helpful for us to do that as investors. And I've always been, as an investor, somebody very willing to risk my capital, not just on domestic, but foreign companies. And in fact, in an age when people are very skeptical about people outside their own country, or very unwilling, it seems, sometimes to invest, as Americans, let us say, in Chinese companies, I think it's worth noting In fact, maybe it's even a point of pride that the two single best-performing stocks in Motley Fool Rule Breakers investing history for that service are NetEase and Baidu. NetEase is up 21 times since we picked it in 2004. Baidu is up 20 times since we picked it in 2006. Both 20-plus baggers and both Chinese. So, that's as good a way as any to close out story number four and Campfire Stories Volume 2. I hope you enjoyed it and found the time worth spending. Thank you. Next week, I'm really excited because we're going to be looking back at the stocks I picked one year ago. The stock market wasn't doing too well in February of 2016, and we presented on this podcast five stocks to feed the bear. It didn't feel great picking stocks back then. I look forward to sharing with you the results of those and what we learned Talking stocks next week. Full on. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. 
and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rulebreaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.